everybody, and welcome to From Plum Creek with Love, a Little House on the Prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez. I have to confess, as I've already stated, I usually record my intros as the last thing, and truth be told, yes, this is, once again, the last thing I'm recording for this particular episode. And it's also mm, really close to the hour I would be actually releasing it for all you to listen to. This just happens to be one of those times where trying to find something to say in the introduction is taking a little bit longer than usual. So going completely off topic, what I will share with you is that over the last week or so, I have been suffering from some sciatic nerve pain, which if you've never had to deal with that, you're lucky. One of the most painful things that can happen while you have a little pinched sciatic nerve is laying in bed and sneezing. And not only that, there comes that point in the middle of the night when you feel as though you need to turn over. And with sciatic nerve pain, you might find yourself laying there for a few minutes debating whether or not it's actually worth it to roll over. Theragun rolling out on a hard lacrosse ball, ice pack, a leave. All of it did just a little bit, but of course the thing that did the best was heading into a chiropractor and getting my SI joint back in alignment. And a few hours later, following that, my attitude changed. And with that being said, let's get started on today's recap. Today's episode is entitled The Rivals and debuted on January 9th, 1978. The teleplay was written by John T. Dugan, based on a story by Hindi Brooks and John T. Dugan, and the episode was directed by William F. Claxton. It should also be noted in the opening credits that Charlotte Stewart is here as Mrs. Sims. We open up on another recess and another game of softball or baseball being played. We get a number of shots of the game from the outfield as well as just in front of home base. Out on the bases, Willie Olson is taunting from third base. Meanwhile, Andy Garvey is over at first, also doing his equal amount of taunting. And despite his attitude, when the ball is finally hit and it's sent over to Willie, Willie fumbles. And yes, I did mix my sports lingo. Next, Laura is at bat. Behind them, over on the school steps, Mary and Nellie are sitting down. Nellie refers to Laura as a tomboy, and Mary just agrees. That's Laura for you. The runner on first, who's standing next to Andy Garvey, is getting plenty of audible lines and some screen time. We'll be seeing more of him throughout the episode. Meanwhile, Laura's up to bat, and on the first pitch, she hits a home run. The first base runner, after making it home and scoring a point for the game and then waiting for Laura, then inquires if he can walk Laura home later. Laura, sure, you have to pass by our house anyway. We cut to the end of school. Mary, surrounded by three boys, is walking behind Hanson's Mill and Grain Storage. Apparently, the female student body head in a complete opposite direction. Trailing behind Mary and those swarm of boys, Laura and that boy from first base also take notice of this. And for a lack of better words, they are acting a little childish. 
That's when the boy from first base inquires if Laura would like to go frogging later that day. And we cut to Plum Creek. Jonathan Garvey is there working on mending some wagon wheels, and Charles is rolling a wheel and clearly has a cast on underneath his Rockford red heel, aka his monkey sock. Sock. And yeah, there's a very prominently noticeable limp. Mending up the wagon, we are informed that Charles and Jonathan Garvey are about to start a transporting job. Also during this conversation, we do find out that indeed, yes, Charles's foot is broken, but never mentioned how or when it happened. Jonathan is busy using his hands to apply grease to the wheel axle. Caroline comes over and informs him that there is a paddle in the bucket to be used to apply the grease. However, according to Jonathan Garvey, if I'm not getting dirty, I don't feel like I'm working. Charles and him both LOL. Delivering a little side eye, Caroline then states, Oh, well, I was just thinking about Alice Garvey and how she must be tired of trying to keep your clothes clean. Jonathan, <laughs> that's what she said. His words, not mine. Caroline leaves the scene to go prepare something. We are then also informed that this is actually less of a job and more of a reality-based competition. Two men, two horses, one wagon full of freight, and the first one to Mankato wins the freighting contract. It's top money, apparently. Oh, and their starting place is Sleepy Eye. It's at this time Laura is the first one to arrive at home and inquires if she can go frogging after her chores are done. Permission granted. They joke about frog legs being tasty versus how they would look on Charles, while Jonathan tries to give Laura a nice hug or handshake with those greasy hands. Laura turns it down. We cut to Laura and the boy from first base moving around a pond. And according to Laura, doggone it, them frogs sure are slippery. The hunt apparently hasn't been too successful. That's until they both eyeball the granddaddy of all frogs sitting on a log. We'll call it Jeremiah. And while Jeremiah, the bullfrog, is sitting out on that log, the boy from first base starts heading towards it, but Laura claims it for herself. And let's just say, as Laura makes her way down to get that frog, she utterly fails and falls in the water, and the frog jumps away. And first base boy, he goes down to the pond edge and extends a hand to help Laura out of the water. Laura takes it and then immediately proves who's the strongest of the two of them and pulls him into the water. It's a rather deep pond, too. As the two make their way out of the water, the boy from first base helps Laura to her feet and pulls her in rather close. And Laura is literally centimeters, millimeters away from her first kiss. But she doesn't. She pauses and she takes a step back. And LOL and a snort. We get a daydream vision of this boy from Laura. He's no Jason A. or Henry Henderson. But thank goodness he's definitely no Johnny Johnson. And I do have to confess, this kid is sporting some great sideburns. It's in this daydreaming state. Laura steps forward. She's now ready for that kiss. However, first base boy, um, are you alright? You look kind of dizzy to me. 
Realizing that Laura was just caught up in the moment, she states, I have to go. Bye. Back at Plum Creek, Charles steps inside the house, complaining of foot pains. Mary, Caroline, and Carrie help give us the 411 about Charles and Jonathan Garvey's freighting competition. When do they leave? They leave tomorrow. And here is also where Charles is nice to remind us that heading to Mankato is not an overnight trip, but a four-day trip. Three days if you're leaving from Sleepy Eye. Off to the side, Caroline mentions that if they get this contract, Charles is going to be on the road quite a bit, which really shouldn't be anything new. He does it at least once a season. The 100-mile walk, the long road home, to live with fear, part two, and this season's The Handyman. So Caroline should be used to being at home with the girls all by themselves. Charles states he's got to do what's best for his family. He then gets up, heads to the bedroom to pack. And Carrie, using her big girl words, expresses how unhappy she is that Pa is leaving. Caroline looks down at her youngest and tells her to go outside and play. Just kidding. She comforts her daughter. Just then, soaked all the way through, Laura arrives at home. This is not the first time she has showed up at home all soaking wet. Coming out of the bedroom, Charles looks Laura up and down and LOLs. Do you catch any frogs? And according to Laura, uh, what frogs? Caroline then starts to take Laura's wet clothes off, and Laura, she's in a different state of mind. She is just staring out into space. Charles inquires if she's alright, and according to Laura, I'm fine. I'm just fine. Over in the kitchen area, Charles inquires to Mary, did you notice how your sister seems to be acting funny? Mary, well, perhaps she found something more interesting than frogs. She then steps out of the scene, and it takes a moment for Charles for it to sink in what he just heard. Cut to Laura taking a bath in the barn. She inquires to Mary, why are boys always buzzing around you? And not being modest at all, Mary states, I don't know, boys just seem to like me. I don't do anything. In fact, the more I ignore them, the more attention they pay me. Laura then goes in for the next question. How many boys have you kissed? Mary's not a kiss and tell kind of person. However, Laura already knows there's at least one, her ex-fiance, John Jr. Mary goes quiet for a second. She doesn't want to talk about it. She gets up and starts to leave the barn. Laura stops her and has one more question. What was it like kissing? You know, what's it feel like? Mary, what does it matter? You said kissing was yucky. And leaves. Cut to late night over the mantle. The porcelain shepherdress? It's been busted and pieced back together. Where is that episode? The camera continues to pan past Charles's pipe, a tin of tobacco, and a pouch before we see Charles in bed. He's a little restless. Caroline wakes up and starts to give him a pep talk about this competition and, you know, if you don't win, kind of comfort. Eventually, they both head back to bed. Meanwhile, up in the loft, Thank you. We have 
a dream sequence from Laura. And LOL, it's another slow motion frolic in the prairie. First base boy and Laura, who's dressed rather lovely, her hair is down and done up. They are just simply, yes, I'm going to say it, running up a hill. And it is taking forever. Eventually, at the top of the hill, Laura and First Space Boy take hands and he starts to pull her into a dip and it absolutely fails. And we find Laura waking up on the floor. We get a shot of a very annoyed Mary looking over the edge of the bed. The scene would be a lot better if she just had stayed quiet and glared, but instead we get a rhetorical question as Laura crawls back into bed and falls back to sleep with a smile. We cut to Laura coming out of the chicken coop and her hair, it's down. Inside the house, she tells her ma that she is trying something different. And Caroline mentions that this is the first time Laura will not be wearing braids going to school. Laura, first time for everything. I'm getting too old for braids. That's when she inquires if she can wear her good pinafore and Sunday ribbons to school. Permission granted. However, don't get it dirty. Before heading up into the loft, Laura then inquires, Do you think I'm pretty? As pretty as Mary? Caroline, Mary is Mary, and you are you. And you are both beautiful. Laura heads up to the loft puts on her pinafore and sits down at the desk and starts to do some of those 100 brush strokes. And I'm looking around and seeing if she still has her bottle of lemon verbena. This is when Laura puts down the brush and she picks up the mirror. And yes, she kisses it. Not once, not twice, four times. And that's when Mary catches her. And to Laura's defense, She's polishing the mirror. It's a little dirty. We quickly cut over to Sleepy Eye. Charles and Jonathan Garvey have finished loading up the freight into their wagon. They're the first ones loaded and the first ones out. As they are leaving, they exchange taunts with some of the other drivers and uh, we cut back to school. And thanks to Mary, first base boy, his name is Jimmy, Jimmy Hill. Running past Mary, he inquires to Laura if she's still mad at him. Laura, now why, why would I be mad? But do you notice anything different? She then has to point out her hair. He's not too impressed. Oh, yeah. You better cut some of that mop off. It's going to get in the way of baseball and stuff. And then, magically, out of the blue, we have another new student. Her name? is Samantha Higgins, but you can call me Sam. She is not only in pigtails, she's also in overalls and conveniently starting school today. She's very much a go-getter. After these introductions, Jimmy invites Sam as well as Laura to a game of toss and Laura, looking down in her clothes and remembering the promise she made, turns down the invite. And she stands there, watching everyone else doing something fun before school. 
we cut to the freight run and Jonathan Garvey is lucky he didn't fall off the wagon. Again, wagon belts. He's jolted awake and greeted with a good morning. Apparently, Charles, he drove all night to get to Mankato. Well, at least 10 miles out of Mankato. That's when they notice the other freight competition coming through a country road and then onto the main road in the lead. They still continue to move, but they've already sort of accepted defeat. Back at Walnut Grove, it's lunchtime. Laura spots Jimmy over with Sam. They're sharing lunches. And Laura decides to ask for some advice from a rather unlikely source, Nellie Olson. Or at least she's going to try to get some advice. She disguises this conversation as an interview for a paper she's writing to get extra credit so she can have grades like Mary. And what is the subject matter? Great loves through the ages. Laura states from Anthony and Cleopatra to Nellie Olson and Lucas Sims. Shocked, but flattered. Nellie Olson is a little speechless. And Laura states, well, you were married. So you got him to ask you. How? And that's when Nellie Olson begins. I attracted him, you know, with my natural attributes, my curly hair, smile, my disposition, you know, sweet and unspoiled, my daintiness. She says that with a mouth full of food. And then sitting up, she sticks her chest out and a good figure. She then bats her eyes to the camera. Just kidding. At this moment, Jimmy comes over and interrupts and asks once again if Laura wants to play baseball. Once again, she turns down the invite. As Jimmy walks away, Nellie Olson, smart move. Boys don't like girls who go running around playing baseball and rough games. And you know, like half the times, you don't even smell like a girl. You're all sweaty and you smell like a fish. Laura, quick to rebuttal, well, I sweat a lot and I fish a lot. Continuing, Nellie Olson states, well, you could cover it up with something seductive. Her words, not mine. You know, like perfume. Oh, you know what the best thing is? Toilet water. And Laura, of course, has no idea what that means. So she's immediately offended, gets up, tells Nellie that was a rotten thing to say, and storms off. Cut to Mankato. Charles and Jonathan Garvey have finally arrived. They're still second, however. The other team is there taunting them, and I'd have to mention how impressed I am that they back that wagon up with those horses. And on the first try. Charles and Jonathan stand by their wagon and watch as the first group starts to unload their cargo, and it's getting inspected. And although they got there first, the delicate chinaware that was the cargo did not make it. And now, by default, Charles and Jonathan are in first place. And inspecting their chinaware, it's in one piece. That's because Charles knows how to deliver some chinaware. He has experience. For my lady, season two, 
Back at Plum Creek, Laura is trying, once again, to look nice. She manages to stay behind at the house for a few extra moments and then proceeds to apply some of Caroline's perfume. I guess she is out of that lemon verbenum, after all. Ugh, and good lord, no one told this girl how to apply, as well as how much to apply. We cut over to Jimmy arriving at school, and Laura greets him. And the first thing Jimmy wants to talk about is Sam, and how she's a hot prospect for the baseball team. This is when Jimmy notices a fragrance, and it's having the opposite effect Laura was expecting. Jimmy calls it overwhelming, and looking around, he inquires if it's maybe a skunk or a dead rat. He heads off to school. Laura is disappointed. We cut to Caroline sitting up in bed. Oh, it's late night at Plum Creek. She's working on her braids. That's when she hears Charles's wagon pulling in, and she gets up, looks out the window, wipes away her tears, and then heads out to greet him. Charles, limping down from that wagon, announces that they won the contract. He then announces he's here for a quick turnaround. He's just going to pack up a few things before he heads on out again. Caroline mentions Laura's behavior as of late, but it's not in regards to her schoolwork, which in fact is doing quite well. Charles says it's not a big worry at this time. This is when Caroline heads in to fix some supper, and Charles states that he'll be gone at first light. Caroline inside the house is not exactly thrilled. Next day, Charles is gone. Mary is having a moment with her mom and states, how long are they going to be gone? It was better before, when we were here all together. We then cut to Charles and Jonathan Garvey doing some freighting through what actually looks like New England. Not that I've been there, but it resembles a New England. We cut back over to Walnut Grove. The Ingle girls are heading into school, and Carrie is actually the one that's in a hurry and tells Laura to go faster. Mary excuses Carrie, tells her to go ahead, and this is when Mary and Laura have some sisterly conversation. And what Laura really wants to know, as she points down to her chest, is, when am I going to get bumps? Yes, Laura is talking about increasing her bust. And Mary, girl, you'll be a woman soon. Laura points out all the girls that have them. Mary, Nellie, Sam, everyone. Mary states, well, we're all different. And there's really nothing you can do about it. She walks off screen. Meanwhile, as Laura continues to walk, she has an apple in her hand and an idea forming in her head. We cut to school. The bell is being rung and the kids are heading into class. Laura is coming out of the outhouse. She's the last one to step in school and, well, Laura's new global endowments do not go unnoticed by the entire class, who are not snickering. They are legit LOLing. Well, that is everyone except Mary, 
and Jimmy Hill. Mrs. Sims, a.k.a. the teacher formerly known as Miss Beetle, plans on starting the day with some arithmetic. Her back is to the classroom as she continues to write those equations on the board. And without turning around, Mrs. Sims calls uh, Laura to be the first one to the board to start solving the problems. The class has toned it down a little. They're now just giggling. And this is when Mrs. Sims finally eyes the new developments and hands the chalk to Laura. And as Laura raises her hand to solve these problems, things are starting to migrate south. And, well, like spring to fall, those apples do fall to the ground. Mrs. Sims, Laura, you're excused to the outhouse. And Laura bolts out of school, embarrassed and humiliated again. We are in Mankato. Oh, actually, cut that. We are told Sleepy Eye. Charles and Jonathan Garvey have been working almost nonstop for the last three weeks. But they are told good news. The boss is very pleased with all of their work, their dependability, and wants to invest some money for them to get another wagon and two more men. Charles and Jonathan are thrilled because this means they're expanding. Maybe we'll have our own freight terminal. They have decided that after the freight is unloaded that they're going to celebrate with a nice room, a very expensive meal, and a bath for Charles. We cut to a French restaurant, but I am jumping to conclusions only because we are greeted with a bonjour from Francois, who seats Charles and Jonathan and hands them a menu. And those two men look over that menu, and there are plenty of questions. Jonathan, what are escargots? His words, not mine. And this is when Francois comes over, and Charles and Jonathan have decided to tempt fate and let Francois select the entire meal, which will include the escargot, a salad, and the beef bouillon, plus a dessert and a bottle of wine, which Charles doesn't turn down. We're informed it's a sleepy eye, red, 78. And as the wine is being poured, Charles spots a family across the way. Charles and Jonathan then continue to stare and mention how much time has passed since they've seen their kids. Nearly a month. Jonathan Garvey states, in another month, I will barely recognize my son. And half-heartedly, Charles responds, yeah, but it's worth it. You know, a pile of cash. Charles continues to watch that family and notices the youngest one after putting down her glass, is sporting a familiar milk mustache. We then get a small interaction of the boy and father at the table as well. The scene is laying on rather thick, and these fathers, they're missing their kids. And that's when the escargot shows up, and Jonathan Garvey not only learns the truth of what it is, 
he also learns his first bit of French. He's never forgetting that word. Looking from that plate to Charles, Jonathan states, if this is the way rich people eat, I'd rather be poor. Charles concurs, and wow, Charles yells at Francois to cancel their order, and they decide to leave right there and then. And they get up, they leave those plates of food, they take that bottle of wine, and they don't even pay the bill. It's a little dine and dash on the prairie. And we cut to morning after, I'm not sure when, but Charles is arriving home at Plum Creek. And Caroline is surprised. And limping down once again from that wagon, Charles confesses he gave up the job so that he could come home. Caroline, with her hands upon her hips, wants to hear the reasoning behind this decision. And Charles confesses he could end up running his own company. They were going to be invested in. But at the end of the day, he doesn't want a big house or those fancy restaurants. All I want is you. Oh, and the girls, too. He continues, I want to be who we are. Your husband and father. I'm not cut out for this work. I miss you. I want to see you. And Caroline calls him a great big galoot and states, that was the grandest thing you ever said to me. The embrace and Caroline states, that freight company was a rival for your attention. Charles, it's no competition at all. Inside the house, Mary announces that Charles has returned. Laura, up in the loft, laying down after the day's humiliation, says that she's never, ever coming down again. Charles and Caroline come inside. Everyone says hello. And given an update about Laura being upstairs, and as Charles starts to make his way up to the loft, Caroline stops him and says, perhaps she should handle this situation. She makes her way upstairs and looking down at Laura states, anyone who pretends to be anyone else is downright silly. And while Laura confesses she just wants other people, <clears throat> Jimmy Hill, to like me, and Caroline states he will, you have to like yourself first and then become who you want to become. You know, you be you, to thy own self be true, all that stuff. And, well, it doesn't take long for Laura to perk up and get ready for school with her head held high. And we find herself at school, and it's a return to Laura with pigtails. And upon arriving, Jimmy immediately invites her to play ball. And she is first up to bat, and Sam is at the pitching mound. And as they taunt one another, Sam and Laura, that is, Laura proves that she's the baddest bee around by hitting, yet again, another home run. We cut to the end of the day. Everyone's heading home. Laura and Jimmy are walking, and he's carrying Laura's books. 
Laura inquires, did Sam let you carry her books? And he confesses, actually, she carried mine. She's kind of a bully. As they talk about parting ways, Laura reminds Jimmy, you have my books. And as they get a little closer, all those books drop and mix together. And as they are picking up their books and standing up, this time it's Jimmy Hill's starstruck face. And oh yes, he's having visions of Laura in that fancy dream sequence dress she wore earlier. And wow, the time to hesitate is through. Laura acts on this and has her first kiss. It's very quick. I would say it was even quicker than John Jr. and Mary's first kiss, but not as awkward. The two of them stand there and Jimmy then inquires if Laura wants to meet up on Saturday to do some fishing. Of course she says yes, and she'll also bring the worms. She turns and starts walking away, and that's when Jimmy Hill stops her and confesses he didn't think that that was yucky. And Laura concurs. Me neither. She turns around and starts to skip home. I don't know if I was the only one to be maybe considering this, but when those apples fell out from Laura's dress, did anyone else think, hmm, those look like red delicious apples? Because they definitely didn't look like a gala apple, and it absolutely did not resemble a Honeycrisp apple. Dear listeners, if you're not familiar with Washington State's agriculture, one thing you ought to know is that Washington State is famous for apples. There are just so many varieties of apples that are sold in the supermarkets up in this area. Have you ever heard of a Sunrise Magic apple? How about an Envy apple? Autumn Glory? Pizzazz! Juicy? Ambrosia? Karma apples? Heck, there's even a pinata apple. Needless to say that there are a wide variety of apples that grow across the planet, and not just in Washington State, but to kind of toot our own horn here in Washington State, we are also the birthplace of the Cosmic Crisp Apple. It's a real thing. The apple itself was starting to be developed back in 1997 at the Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, and technically didn't go on sale until December of 2019. So thank you to the Wikipedia page on Cosmic Crisp Apples, as well as CosmicCrisp.com and an article entitled Cosmic Crisp, How a Bunch Made One Good Apple, published back in December of 2019 by a Cindy Hollenbeck from the foundation.wsu.edu website. And lastly, it's a little sad to have to mention, but way back, way back, in June of 2020, the oldest apple tree in Washington State, which just happens to be located in Vancouver, Washington, finally died at 194 years old. 
However, gone, but not forgotten, it does have some of its offspring planted around the community. According to this particular article, this one tree back in 1830 was responsible for the first harvest in Clark County, located just across the Columbia River from Multnomah County and Portland, Oregon. And a quick shout out to coin.com and their article, Matriarch of Apple Industry, Vancouver's Old Apple Tree Dies at 194 Years Old article. And with that, let's get to reviewing and rating this episode. This episode had continuity. It made two references to episodes from earlier in the season. They both involved a kiss. So right off the bat, loving this episode. And speaking of continuity, it does show Laura growing up. Up to this point, she has been that, quote, tomboy, according to Nellie Olson. And again, up to this point, she has had three childhood crushes. And one of them was even in two episodes. You know, Jason A., the scientist. Yeah, I know, Johnny Johnson had two episodes as well. But that second one, he wasn't even in Walnut Grove. And up to this point, Laura has always stated how she wouldn't mind growing up and spending the rest of her days with her pa. But this is the first time Laura gets that dreamy, hazy vision and starts to inquire about things like kissing a boy. So this episode was really great with now starting to distinguish that Laura is noticing these changes in her life. Not just her feelings about boys, but her body changing. Or not changing, as the case may be for Laura. And speaking of changes, and I know this is quite a jump, but although Mrs. Sims was there, nobody called her Mrs. Sims. In fact, nobody called her Miss Beetle either. I was enjoying many parts of this bit of growth for Laura, which is why I was a little disappointed having it all intermixed with Charles and Jonathan Garvey heading out to whatever destinations their freighting jobs are taking them to. And so my thought is, if your foot is bugging you that much, just write yourself completely out of the story and we can just focus on Laura and her tween antics as she's starting to grow up. I mean, that whole restaurant scene at the end of this episode, that was a little heavy-handed, on the nose, uh, to convey how much Jonathan and Charles miss their family. And again, I'm not entirely sure why Caroline is so distraught with Charles being as gone as much as he is. Like I said, he's been gone for an extended period of time almost every season. Okay, so maybe season three, not so much, because Caroline was busy at the hospital doing laundry. Caroline's a strong woman. She knows how to take care of an infection. She can do anything on her own. And okay, maybe she does want a little more companionship than her daughters. And Chris Nelson and Grace Snyder are no longer in the area. And I don't know exactly how close she is to Alice Garvey. So maybe her being a little overdramatic about Charles being gone is not unwarranted. She stayed at that little house, this one, and the one in Kansas, for extended periods of time already. 
but I did love her and Laura's mother-daughter moment because again they're so few and far between and well yeah Laura is getting to that age where she's going to have more questions that Ma's going to be able to that Caroline is going to be able to answer and Charles not so much and well now that we're here let's go ahead and address the elephant in Walnut Grove poor Samantha Higgins why are you even in this episode there could have been a completely different way of showing how Laura's change, her nice pinafore, and her hair down, and how it now affects Laura behaves. And, and really, that's the only reason we have Sam. And they make Sam apparently too much like a boy when Jimmy calls her a bully because she is assertive. I don't know if I needed the visual aid of Sam Higgins there, I don't know, maybe Laura needed to see how she could be, I don't want to say replaced, but maybe what she's missing out on by applying these new changes. Again, pinafore, hair down. But yeah, Sam Higgins, waste of time. But of course, what wasn't a waste of time? This week's Little House moment. And it goes to gravity proving once again that everything falls to the ground. I feel as though Isaac Newton would have gotten a chuckle out of this scene as well. But truth be told, no one informed Laura about the concept of support. Not that that would be something that would be available on the prairie back then. And it's not necessarily the scene itself, which deserves the little house moment of the week, but it is a funny scene, but it, it again is one of those embarrassing or humiliating moments that I'm never leaving the house again. And in retrospect, you sometimes feel that's where you got some of the best growth. As humiliating as it was and embarrassing as it was, it's going to be one of those moments that stays with you, but also show you how strong you can be. And with that, let's finally get to rating this episode. If this episode would have stuck strictly on Laura, this episode could have easily been my so-called life on the prairie. She's growing up. She's becoming a tween. But of course, that's slightly accelerated in the prairie-verse. We're seeing this change development in Laura as she is getting older, and I'm for it. You know, I've speculated that if you went through the previous seasons and cherry-picked throughout them, you could have a, a series that has a pretty long-running story arc and continuity. And like I said, it's the little things that count. So the mentioning of Luke Sims as well as Mary's ex-fiance, John Jr. I mean, another obscure little reference is at the beginning of The Runaway Caboose when... Carl inquires if either of the Ingalls girls have been on a train, and Laura states yes, Mary has, because she went to Minneapolis in a previous episode. It's just small things like that that help the series for me. <sighs> and then, of course, we had the whole other half of the story, the other rival story, which I wouldn't even have considered Sam Higgins a rival at all, but... I digress. I'm talking about Jonathan Garvey and Charles and their relationship with their freighting job. All I really needed to see was them fixing up the wagon, 
them winning the contract, and then Charles coming home. Other than that, Charles could have been out of the entire episode. So, with those ideas and thoughts in my head, I'm going to go ahead and say it. We are going to give this episode, The Rivals, four and a quarter bonnets. And, well, those are just some of my thoughts and feelings about this episode. And as always, I wouldn't mind hearing any thoughts or feelings you have about this episode or any previous episode or season. From Plum Creek with love at Gmail and at Instagram. And I apologize, I am still trying to figure out how to get this up on Stitcher. I'm following all the directions. Even watched a video or two on how to transfer it from here to there. And it's not working, so I will continue to try to get that uploaded there. So, again, we can get this podcast out to more listeners. Which also, if you leave a rating or review, that helps too. Thank you. And with that, we come to the end of another episode of From Plum Creek with Love, a little house on the prairie podcast. I'm your host, John Hernandez, and until next time, take care. Yeah.